0: Welcome to the New Books and Philosophy channel of the New Books Network. My name is Robert Talese. I am professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the channel with Carrie Figder. Today, my guest is Professor Brian Leiter. Brian is the Carl N. Llewellyn Professor of Jurisprudence at the University of Chicago Law School and the director of its Center for Law, Philosophy, and Human Values. We will be talking about his new book, Why Tolerate Religion?, which has just been published by Princeton University Press. Religious conviction enjoys a privileged status in our society. This is perhaps most apparent in legal contexts, where religious conviction is often given special consideration. To be more precise, religious conscience is recognized as a legitimate basis for exemption from standing laws whereas claims of conscience deriving from non-religious commitments generally are not. But why is this? Is there something special about religiously based claims of conscience? Is there something special about religion such that it gives rise to claims of conscience that deserve special consideration? In his new book, Bryan argues that although religious conviction is to be tolerated, and liberty of conscience is to be protected, there is indeed nothing special about religion that warrants its privileged status in the law as a source of exemption and other kinds of privilege. The argument is straightforward and yet nuanced, weaving together considerations from legal theory, moral philosophy, and political theory. There is much to talk about, so let's turn to the interview. Hello, Brian Leiter.
1: Hello, Bob. How are you?
0: I'm doing fine. Good morning and thank you for joining us on New Books and Philosophy.
1: Thank you for having me and doing this.
0: Well, great. Today on New Books and Philosophy, my guest is Professor Brian Leiter, author of the new book, Why Tolerate Religion, which is just published by Princeton University Press. This is a relatively short book that covers a lot of ground. Um, Its primary concern is well captured by its title – Uh, That is, Professor Leiter examines the privileged place given to religious conviction in our society's legal and moral economy. Then he asks why religion should be afforded such privilege. Or to put it in a slightly different way, Leiter asks, what's so special about religious conviction such that it is given special legal and moral standing in our society? I think the book masterfully combines analyses drawn from moral philosophy, legal theory, social and political philosophy, um, but it's also highly acceptable, uh, accessible and uh, deeply engaging. Um, so there's a lot to talk about, but before turning to the details, uh, Brian, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Certainly, and thanks for that nice uh, introduction of the book. Sure. Um, so I am currently... Uh, Carl Llewellyn, Professor of Jurisprudence here at the University of Chicago. Uh, I did both my law and PhD studies at the University of Michigan uh, in Ann Arbor. Uh, I taught for many years at the University of Texas, Austin. Uh, Living in the special benighted state of Texas uh, sparked my interest in um, the status of religion in our society. I'll come back to that in a moment. And in 2008, I moved to Chicago, where, where I've been since. Uh but during the time I was in Texas when I arrived in Texas in 1995 um, George W Bush uh was the governor this was before he was an international war criminal and um, he was a relatively benign republican governor he wasn't very conservative had sort of standard cut taxes tort reform issues um, but after he left uh and, uh and uh uh took up the presidency um conservative christians in the state in in a way became much more active uh in politics and in particular there were all these unpleasant uh battles uh, with the state board of education over the approval of textbooks that for example taught darwin's theory of evolution by natural selection correctly uh and they didn't like that um there were uh uh, they introduced a moment of silence in the public schools. Quite explicitly, the state senator who promoted it uh, quite explicitly said it was because uh, Texans weren't happy that prayer had ever been taken out of the schools. So the next best thing they could get was a moment of silence. Um, and. Uh, As a post-Enlightenment kind of person, uh, this all rubbed me the the wrong way, Um, but it did lead me then to think about the the questions I take up in this book, and as I say in the uh, uh, the prefatory materials to the book, um, when I started this inquiry um, under the heading, Why Tolerate Religion? I was actually sort of inclined to come up with a less favorable answer. Um, until I started to think about it and concluded that there were actually good reasons to tolerate religion. It's just they weren't specific to religion. Uh, And so the answer to the title question of the book is the reasons to tolerate religion are the reasons to tolerate liberty of conscience. They're not in any way specific to religious conscience.
0: Excellent. So why don't we um, pick up with that? Um, The book begins with a... um, uh, a comparison between two uh, the situations of two different children, yeah. uh, and that this is the sort of animating uh, story throughout the book. And um, I take it that it's uh, it's 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 a it's a good comparison, precisely for the reason you just stated, um, because it is or helps to bring into relief the question of what's special about religious conviction that right. couldn't be claimed about other kinds of of conviction. So this is a um, a case involving a Sikh boy. Uh, and uh, the dagger that he is, uh, by religious obligation, um, required to carry, uh, and a, a rural boy and a knife. Um, can you just tell us about the about the case, and then we'll we'll get to talking about your analyses. Sure. Um, so
1: here's the simple thought: uh, you know, imagine it's the first day of middle school, and a thirteen or fourteen year old boy shows up at school carrying his knife. Um, principal's going to call the police. The knife is going to be confiscated. And uh, and that's going to be the end of it. Uh, But that's not going to be the case if the boy is a member of the Sikh religion and the Sikh religion uh, as one of the uh, like most religions, there are various rituals and ceremonies that mark the passage to to manhood. Uh, In the case of the Sikh religion, boys at the age of about 13 or 14 acquire an an obligation to carry uh, what's called a kirpan, which is uh, a ceremonial uh, dagger uh and they are to carry it then for the rest uh for the rest of their life um now the kirpan uh is in fact can be an actual knife there are some sikhs that carry a wooden kirpan uh but many carry uh an actual dagger sikhs have gone to court uh in parts of the united states uh i talk about an important canadian supreme court case from uh, 6 years ago involving Sikhs. They've challenged laws that prohibit the carrying of weapons in school uh, on the grounds that uh, they have an obligation of conscience to carry that knife with them according to their religion. And in many cases, uh, Sikhs have been granted exemptions from, uh, from these laws. So this is sort of a paradigm case of the state disapproves of knife carrying but they will tolerate an exemption from the law in the case of uh, someone who has a religious obligation to carry, uh, carry the knife. Then I juxtapose this with a different kind of case. Um, this is a, not a hypothetical case, but it's certainly not completely fanciful. Um, imagine uh, as is certainly true in, in parts of Texas, uh, a family that uh, has lived on the land, on a ranch, on a farm uh, for many generations. And that has its own, as it were, traditions that mark the coming of age of of young boys in their community. In this case, the the ritual is one of passing on to the son uh, a knife that belongs to the father, that in turn belonged to his father, that in turn belonged to his father, and so on. And the thought is, of course, that there are a lot of good reasons out on a ranch to be carrying a knife and that it's a mark of manhood when the knife is passed to you and you then acquire the same obligation as part of this longstanding family tradition to always have your knife with you as a sign that you're now a responsible uh, adult. Um, This boy goes to school uh, with his knife uh, and uh, he's not going to get an exemption in the courts of the United States even if he says i have a conscientious obligation to always have with me the knife that my father gave me that belonged to his father that belonged to his father and so on and so forth courts are not going to be interested they are going to enforce the ban on weapons in the school this isn't peculiar to the united states even though other western democracies specifically recognize liberty of conscience in addition to free exercise of religion as we call it in the united states um, courts elsewhere almost never recognize the claims of non-religious people to have conscientious objections to uh, to the law. There's one exception for that pertaining to military service, uh, which we can perhaps uh, return to shortly.
0: Okay, well, th- that was helpful. So, um, you know, one reaction that uh, uh, your book um, provoked, um, or at least the title of your book, Provote, might be of intre- Provoked, might be of interest. Um, I was reading uh, Why Tolerate Religion in a Starbucks, and um, this is a common thing in Nashville, by the way. Uh, a complete stranger walks up to you and starts talking to you about whatever it is that you are doing. Uh-huh. Um, and so uh, a stranger um, walked up and saw the title of the book and uh, offered um, an unsolicited uh, comment. Um, and what she said was that um, religion is increasingly under attack in our country um, and that our society needs greater toleration towards religion. Um, and so I, I wasn't sure whether she thought that your book was um, given the title going to be making that case or uh, maybe she suspected that it was, um, there's something more uh, suspicious going on. Um, I don't know. Uh, I didn't really engage with her. Um But the thought was that uh, clearly that um, uh, we need greater religiosity or greater protection for religion. Um, Now, I take it that your own conception of toleration differs quite a a bit from what I was imagining um, uh, this particular woman's uh, view is. So can you tell us a little bit about it? I take it that it's uh, a lot of the argument turns on. Uh, getting clear on different uh, ways of understanding and diff- maybe even different grades of toleration. Um, can you tell us how, your view about toleration and, uh, uh, and how it shapes the argument? Sure.
1: Um, yeah, it sounds to me like your uh, your uh, busybody in the coffee shop. I uh, <laughs> uh, wasn't talking about toleration at all. It sounds like she has a view which strikes me as uh, implausible, uh, but it is a view that some people have, namely that religion is such a distinctive good that rather than merely being tolerated, it ought to be right, uh, positively encouraged uh, and that 's certainly not the uh, not the view I defend in the book. Um, I do assume in the book that the sort of general moral principle that underlies uh, a legal regime in which exemptions are given from generally applicable laws to religious believers who feel they can't comply with them that the the principle underlying this is something like a principle of uh toleration um, and but i do think it's important for purposes of my argument to distinguish uh different kinds of notions that uh, that can be often travel under the heading of of toleration. What I'm interested in is what I call specifically principle toleration and principle toleration uh, uh, operates in the following circumstance that is you have let's say one group a dominant group that actually disapproves of the beliefs and practices of another group right? and that's crucial for toleration to have any purchase. If one group is just not interested in another group's practices, there's no scope for toleration. That's just pure indifference. Sometimes indifference is to be preferred, all right? That is we might say sometimes it's it's better that uh, you know when I move into my neighborhood, my neighbor doesn't come over and say, "Oh, I see there's another Jew on the block." Oh, <laughs> I'm um, okay. I can tolerate Jews on the block. Uh, that's not so good. It would be better that uh, neighbors be indifferent to each other's uh, religious uh, practices uh, rather than merely tolerate them. So toleration does have built into this this idea that there is active disapproval of what some other group or persons are do- doing or believing. And yet still, when principle toleration is in play, um, the dominant group says, we think there are good moral reasons to nonetheless let these people do the things and believe the things we disapprove of, right? And that's the special feature of toleration. Uh, it's the conjunction of disapproval with nonetheless the sense that there's a good moral reason why we should, despite our disapproval, let those people carry on with the beliefs uh, and perhaps the practices of which we disapprove. Um, One notion that toleration is often confused with, at one end is indifference, but another another notion it's often confused with is what you might just call Hobbesian compromise or modus vivendi, right? That is, one group actively disapproves of another group uh, and their practices, and uh, they would dearly like to stamp out those practices, but they figure it's too costly. That is, it would entail the war of all against also, it's much too costly to actually try to stop them. So we'll just put up with these practices of which we disapprove, but only because we can't get away with changing them, right? right. And, of course, you can see that principle toleration provides a more robust basis um, for differences of opinion, conviction and lifestyles then does mere Hobbesian compromise. Hobbesian compromise is, of course, hostage to any change in the relative ability of the dominant group to change, uh, the other groups, uh, the other groups behavior. So my assumption is that, uh, the moral principle of toleration in the sense I've just described is what's at stake, uh, in the law of religious liberty. And then the question is, if we think about the, what kinds of moral reasons there are for toleration, uh, it won't turn out that they single out toleration of religion, in particular, as deserving a special kind of legal and moral solicitude.
0: Okay, well that that brings me to the next question, which is the um, the other important term in the title of the book, uh, religion. Um, so maybe now it would, be, it would be good to ask you because um, you do have a, a I think a, a pretty insightful um, analysis of uh, w- what that. Term religion means. Uh, so, what's a re- what's religion? Okay, good. So, um, you know, if we're
1: going to ask the question, is there any reason to treat religion as special in the law? Uh, we are going to have to say something about what religion is, and of course, this often makes uh, people nervous trying to give such a, a characterization. But I think it's unavoidable if we're going to try to ask and answer the question I'm interested in. Um, And let me just say something as it were about methodology here. That is, I I do think any attempt to say what religion is has to be sensitive to two things. One is it has to do some justice to some of our pre-theoretical intuitions about what counts uh, as religion. If you give an account of religion and it turns out that Catholicism is not a religion, something went awry in the (laughs) the analysis. Um, And, of course, certain popular accounts of what religion is, say belief in a supreme being, uh, immediately run afoul of that requirement to do justice to some of our pre-theoretical intuitions. because first of all, it has to be belief in supreme beings if you're not to lose a billion Hindus. Right? Right. And even if you add you know an s to belief in a supreme being to supreme beings, you still lose Buddhism. Um, and I take it that that's a pretty high cost to pay for for an analysis of religion.. All right. So on the one hand, we want to capture sort of the pre-theoretical intuitions about central cases. Of religions. But on the other hand, we want to focus on what's morally important about religion from the standpoint of toleration. And that's not necessarily going to be exactly the same thing as what makes religions important to people. Okay. With those prefatory words, my claim is that uh, what is distinctive of religious claims of conscience from other claims of conscience. Uh, can be picked out by three characteristics, and these are meant to be conjunctive, not in, uh, not disjunctive. That is, uh, a religious claim of conscience will have the following three characteristics. First of all, the religion will impose some categorical demands on its adherents. Uh, secondly. Actually, let me, let me just take these one by one. Sorry, so let me back up. So all religious uh, commands of conscience, excuse me, all religions will impose some categorical demands on their adherents. That is, the religion will say there are certain things you must do, and they aren't negotiable. Right? And, of course, this is why religion comes into conflict with the law. Right. Um, after all, if the religion merely said, uh, it would be great if you carry the kerpan with you, but don't go to too much trouble. Right, uh, then Sikhs wouldn't litigate about this. They would just say, "Okay, first day of school, well, we have to leave the the kerpan at home." Uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses are responsible for a lot of the uh, religious liberty in the litigate uh, in the in the courts of the United States, and this is because they have a lot of serious categorical demands, and they don't care what the law says. They're not going to do it. Now, of course, categoricity of demands is not distinctive of religion. In fact, I take it it's distinctive of all claims of conscience that they involve. Uh, categoricity of demands, a sense that something absolutely must be done, it's non-negotiable, I can't forego doing it just because the law says I don't have to do it, So categoricity is characteristic of I think claims of conscience, generally when they run up against uh, uh, the demands of the law, but it is central to religious claims of conscience as well. The next two characteristics of religious claims of conscience are I think more distinctive of religion. The second one uh, is that all religions involve some beliefs, and I underline some beliefs, uh, that are insulated from ordinary standards of reasons and evidence. And by ordinary standards of reasons and evidence, I mean the standards of reasons and evidence that we use in ordinary life, and that I take to be basically continuous with the kinds of standards of reasons and evidence that figure in the sciences. So we can say all religions contain some beliefs that are taken to be insulated from scientific standards of reasons and evidence, even though religions include other beliefs that aren't, but all religions at least have a few that fall into that category. And what I'm trying to capture here, of course, is the... Uh, uh, what we express in ordinary language by saying uh, that uh, people who are adherents of a religion believe certain things on faith. Right? The idea of believing something on faith is that you don't require reasons and evidence of the ordinary kind to nonetheless continue to, uh, to believe uh, uh, in s- certain aspects of the religion. Okay, so that's the second characteristic which I'll just refer to as insulations from reasons and evidence. Third characteristic, uh, which, uh, is suggested, and I use as an illustration, some remarks of Schopenhauer, is that all religions are characterized, um, by discharging the function that I call existential consolation. Um, that is helping people deal with the basic facts about the human situation, not to spoil your morning, but you and I are both going to die. Uh, <laughs> Everyone is going to die. Everyone is going to experience loss, suffering, pain, hardship of various kinds. All religions in different ways uh, try to speak to these facts about the human situation and help people come to terms with them. So in my account, what's distinctive of religious claims of conscience is they impose some categorical demands on their adherence. Some of their beliefs are insulated from reasons and evidence. And the religion uh, as a whole undertakes this function of existential consolation. Uh, I then argue that uh, claims of conscience that conjoin those three attributes, while they deserve toleration on the same grounds that other claims of conscience deserve toleration, they aren't especially important from a moral point of view, such that only they should be singled out uh, in the law for special special protection.
0: Okay. Well, great. So why don't we just pick up with that? Um, because I, it's the core of the book. Um, I, the core argument of the book has to do with um, the question of whether the state should recognize religious conviction. And here we understand religion in the way that you you just spelled out, satisfying uh, the, you know, the conjunct of those three um, uh, types of commitment. Um, so why the state should recognize religious conviction as legally special, that is, um, as the basis upon which Uh, It may grant um, special protections or exemptions or benefits or status um, uh, upon those uh, who have such convictions. Um, So you think it's important, uh, as you were just saying, to deny uh, that the state ought to take religion as special in this way. But you also want to uh, uphold uh, the idea that liberty of conscience – is a fundamental uh, moral, political, social uh, 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 ideal. Um, so can you tell us how those arguments run? That is uh, uh, how uh, the, uh, the, the connection uh, between upholding um, liberty of conscience and uh, the denial that religion is um, sufficient to confer special status on people with conviction, uh, how do those arguments run?
1: So uh, I take the approach, which is, uh, which is probably not uh, common in a lot of moral and political philosophy, um, and I'll explain why I take it in a second, I take the approach of actually considering two lines of moral argument that I think have been influential and actually influential in law um, that represent two different sort of major traditions of modern moral and political thought, um, the deontological and the, the utilitarian. Um, the reason I don't, as it were, just pick one as giving the correct account of the moral foundations of uh, toleration and liberty of conscience uh, is I don't think there's a good argument for thinking that only one of them is actually the uh, the correct one. Uh, and I also, as it were, want the argument to have a certain resonance, uh, regardless of people's starting points. Now, I don't canvass every possible moral argument for liberty of conscience, but I think I picked out two that are actually quite central and that have enough intuitive resonance to get most people on board with the with the argument that sure. that's going to follow. Um, the Rawlsian argument I'm interested in is uh, is actually the one from uh A Theory of Justice in 1971 for various reasons that I, I won't go into here I think political liberalism uh was uh, a mistaken turn in Rawlsian political philosophy. What I'm interested in is that original intuition pump uh, of the the original position and Rawls's argument that people in the original position, knowing that they will have a conscience, but not knowing whether they will be in the dominant or minority group in the societies in which they find themselves, will adopt as one of the foundational principles of justice uh, a principle protecting liberty of conscience to ensure that in fact there is some sphere in which they are able to act in accordance with their sense of right and wrong, what must be done, what's what must not be done. And, and so on. Um, I think there's no need for this particular audience to go through the, the details of that argument. I go through right. a bit of it in the, in the book out of consideration for my other readers. <laughs> um, uh, of course the striking thing about the Rawlsian argument, uh, which doesn't make it very helpful to somebody who thinks religious conscience is special is that, it is explicitly an argument for liberty of conscience. Full stop. Uh, right. There's nothing in the Rawlsian argument, as far as I can see, that takes that makes religious conscience uh, special in a uh, just legal regime. Um, the other line of argument uh, that I focus on is mainly that uh, that uh, we can see is coming from from John Stewart. Mill. Um, And of course, this is, uh, again, to put it, uh, to simplify a bit, uh, is the idea that uh, discovering the truth uh, will, in fact, maximize utility, uh, and we're only going to discover the truth uh, in a context in which there is a wide scope for people to not only express different views, including views contrary to ours, (coughs) but also uh for people to experiment with different ways of living since of course as uh as you know um, though curiously many legal scholars don't seem to know uh <clears throat> mill uh, mill thought there were better and worse answers to questions about how you ought to live uh not just better and worse answers to questions about uh the nature of the of the natural world but he mm-hmm. thought it was essential in order to get the right answer that there be a sphere of liberty in which people could, in fact, experiment with different ways of living. So, as it were, we could adduce the evidence of which ways of life are conducive to happiness uh, and which ways are not. Now, the utilitarian um, argument might seem to provide a bit more help uh... for the uh... for the claim that uh, uh... religious claims of conscience uh... ought to be viewed as legally more important uh... than others and there's there's two lines of uh... thought that are possible here one possibility is that um, uh... you might think that even though relig- some beliefs in every religion are insulated from ordinary standards of reasons and evidence right? It might be in the interest of the discovery of the truth that, um, that we entertain other kinds of reasons and evidence that might be especially conducive to discovery of other kinds of truths. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's one possible argument. Now, I expressed some skepticism uh, uh, about this. Um, I'll just mention two, two countervailing considerations. On on the one hand, it's not really obvious if you do sort of an induction over the past four or five hundred years of uh, human study and investigation of the world that uh, insulating your beliefs from what I'm calling scientific standards of reasons and evidence is actually very conducive to the discovery of the truth. I understand, of course, there are some philosophers um, who... Uh, deny that, um, but uh, it seems to me that uh, that the burden is is going to be on the other side here to give us reasons to think that that's uh, that's actually likely. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other concern, of course, is that it's not like religion is distinctive in its insulations from reasons uh, and evidence. I mean, you know, people who read palms you know, people who practice telepathy, people go to seances and talk to the dead. Um, they also, right, believe a lot of things insulated from uh, reasons, uh, uh, ordinary standards of reasons and evidence. Um, so it's not clear this particular feature of religion would lead to the conclusion, even granting uh, the million starting point, that, uh, that religion is, is especially important. The other possibility from a utilitarian standpoint, of course, is that uh, maybe the existential consolation function of religion um, is so utility-maximizing that that's a special reason in which to uh, – why we should treat religious conscience as more important than other claims of conscience. Um, This seems to me a possibility, but it does turn on certain kinds of speculation. <clears throat> where the what we should include is not entirely obvious, that is we do have to, as it were weigh the existential consolation benefits of religion uh, against the costs of encouraging that uh, uh, sometimes alarming conjunction of feeling you must do things and being completely indifferent to ordinary standards of reasons and evidence that might bear on whether you should you should do them, and of course, it is that funny combination that makes religion um, uh, shall we say, sometimes a bit uh, alarming. The conjunction of categoricity and being insulated from standards of reasons and evidence. So only if we were really confident that the existential consolation function produced more utility than alternatives that didn't involve the conjunction of categoricity and insulations from reasons and evidence, would we draw the conclusion that religion really is more important. And I suggest that it's not obvious why we should bite that particular speculative bullet, uh, as, as I call it. So the conclusion we get to is good reasons for liberty of conscience, right? Pick the reasons you prefer, the Rawlsian or the million, right? Um, Mm -hmm. good moral reasons for liberty of conscience, not obvious that those moral considerations, however, pick out religious conscience as more important than any other kind of claim of conscience.
0: Okay. And so, um, let me ask just one sort of quick question before before moving on to the next stage of the argument that might foreshadow some of the things that come up at the end. Um, so it looks as if uh, if the argument thus far goes through, uh, we're sort of um, confronted with a, with, with a kind of uh, disjunction. Um, uh, if religion – if we want to respect the liberty of conscience, um, we've got good reasons to do that, uh, either the Rawlsian or the Millian – uh, sort, um, but those aren 't sufficient to uh, pick out religious conviction as in some way special, such that it is uh, a deserving basis for um, uh, being the source of exemptions uh, and other kinds of privileges um, so I guess the, the we 're now stuck with either um, uh, uh, no exemptions for religion or shouldn 't we uh, also consider the possibility that maybe the the scope of uh, um, appropriate bases for exemptions should just be widened beyond religion. That is, maybe there should be more exemptions. Yeah, good.
1: So, I mean, those are basically the two possible upshots of the the argument. We could have what I call a universal scheme of exemptions for claims of conscience. Anyone could have legal standing to go to court and say, this legal requirement conflicts with uh, my conscience, therefore I should get an exemption from it. Um, or we could go the opposite route, what I call the no exemptions approach, and basically say, look, there's not going to be any exemptions from neutral laws of general applicability with one caveat that, that I'll come back to. Um, I do want to emphasize the issue here is exemptions from laws that are genuinely neutral. Okay, That mm-hmm. is, um, it's certainly the case, we've had cases like this in the U.S. courts, um, that A law can be passed on an apparently neutral ground and yet its purpose is really to burden the conscientious claims of some group within the community. That kind of law is basically intolerant. We had a famous case in Florida like that where a community passed a law allegedly on animal welfare grounds, which prohibited animal sacrifices. But in fact, the only reason the local city council got interested in animal sacrifices is because there was a small religious community, uh, religious group in that community that practiced animal sacrifices. And Mm -hmm. the United States Supreme Court said, in effect, they didn't use the language of toleration. They said, but this was impermissibly intolerant. It was burdening uh, this particular religion, singling it out under the guise of a law that was neutral. So what we're talking about here are laws that are genuinely neutral, that don't have as their ulterior purpose just to burden a particular uh, uh, group within society, uh, but that nonetheless conflicts with the conscientious uh, commitments of certain members of society. Uh, As I say in the book, no legal system is going to adopt the scheme of universal exemptions for claims of uh, conscience. Um, And this is just as a practical matter. Uh, It would uh, create an impossible situation for the courts. First of all, they'd be flooded with litigation. And second of all, they would be put in the difficult position of having to adjudicate the sincerity of claims of conscience. Uh, the american courts even in the religious liberty context always make a, a big show out of saying that well it's the sincerity of the religious conviction that counts not you know whether it's a recognizable religion or generally shared or anything like that but but the reality is when you look at all the cases they always involve uh... religious believers whose religions are recognizable um, and, uh... and i think there's a there's a, a simple epistemic reason for that which is the nice thing about religions is they have institutions, they often have texts, they have traditions, and so you have a lot of evidential base on which to assess what is the religion required, is this person really an adherent of that religion, and and so on. Um, And so even when the courts get bogus religious liberty claims, there was the famous Church of Marijuana um, (laughs) that had a religious obligation to smoke dope, um, and the courts decided this was a bogus uh, church, as in fact it clearly was. So, courts are not going to throw open the door to uh, universal claims for uh, exemptions. Indeed, the only case, to come back to military conscription, which I alluded to earlier, the only context in which Western democracies pretty systematically allow a non-religious exemption from the law on grounds of conscience is conscientious objections to military service. But when the United States Supreme Court confronted that issue during the military draft in the Vietnam era, they were very careful not to treat it as a matter of constitutional law. That is, they didn't read into the First Amendment of the United States Constitution's protection for free exercise of uh, religion that it also means free exercise of conscience. No, no. They treated it as a matter of interpreting the Selective Service Registration Act, a statute enacted by Congress that authorized the military draft. And they said that act should be interpreted to provide for conscientious objection for non-religious pacifists. Other Western democracies have similar kinds of exemptions. Um, it's a strange exemption because it recognizes only one kind of non-religious claim of conscience, namely absolute pacifism. So the idea that you could have a conscientious objection, say, to the war of aggression against Iraq, but not have a conscientious objection to the war against Hitler, that has no standing as a matter of law. It's all or nothing. The only kind <laughs> of claim of conscience that counts is total, total pacifism. So it's a strange uh, sort of exemption for a non-religious claim of conscience. Uh, and that's as far as the courts have gone. They open right. the door to every claim of conscience, as I say, they'd be faced with insurmountable practical hurdles. But put the practical considerations to one side, um, uh, it seems to me there's another countervailing consideration here, which is that um, laws in a just society, and if we're not talking about laws in a just society, then a whole bunch of other issues come into play on in which I'm not taking positions, but laws in a just society that are generally, genuinely neutral and that aim to promote the general welfare um, can often be frustrated in achieving their purpose if we simply grant exemptions for those who have conscientious objections to them. Here's a simple and very au courant example in the United States right now. Uh, Laws requiring mandatory vaccinations for school children. Um, These laws, uh, in every single state, they permit uh, religious objections to vaccination as grounds for being exempt from them. Um, Some states even permit, but it's a small minority, what they call philosophical uh, objection. (laughs) Um, I think the level of philosophy that counts for stating a philosophical objection to vaccination, we would find a bit disappointing. (laughs) Um, It seems to include any crackpot view about, you know, vaccines cause autism and, you know, pick what you want. I heard a great one talking about the book uh, a week ago out on long Island where this woman assured me that vaccines were now made from uh, uh, fetal tissue, human <laughs> fetal tissue. And this was a grounds for a uh, religious objection to it. Okay. Um, but the result of this, of course, that is, these exemptions are very widely granted and with very little oversight is we now have outbreaks, especially in the Western United States of measles, of whooping cough, of diseases that mandatory schemes of vaccination had almost entirely eliminated. um, These are what I call exemptions that defeat the general welfare, and they're what I call burden-shifting exemptions. That is, if we grant the exemptions from these laws, they shift burdens onto other people in the community. Uh, My bottom line position is that we should never grant exemptions from neutral laws that promote the general welfare if those exemptions will shift burdens onto other people. If, however, granting the exemption won't shift burdens, then anyone should have standing to raise a conscientious objection uh, to it. Uh, and there are a lot of laws that I think fall into, into that category. The example I like to use, because it's familiar to everyone, when you have your photo taken for the driver's license, uh, you're always required to move any, remove any headgear. Right? They don't want you wearing you know, your, uh, your baseball hat tipped over your eyes. Um, <laughs> But it seems to me that, you know, for certain uh, religious believers for whom, say, to go back to the Sikhs, men must wear a turban. Uh, Orthodox Jew must wear a skull cap. Uh, granting an exemption in those cases that is allowing these men to continue to wear something on their head during the driver's license photo doesn't, in fact, uh, shift any burdens on anyone and has the benefit of not requiring these individuals to disregard a uh, a demand of their, their religious conscience. So there should be some room for exemptions when they aren't burden shifting, but I'm skeptical that there should be any exemptions when they have the effect of shifting burdens on to other people and defeating the, uh, the pursuit of the general welfare through, uh, through the law.
0: Well, let me ask, uh, just quickly on, on, this point. Um, so there's a, uh, um, a line, um, that uh, was taken up uh, maybe 10 years ago in a, a book by Brian Barry. Uh, the book is called Culture and Equality and you mention it uh, in your book um, that uh, th- that raises a, a, a different uh, – maybe in some ways a, a, um, a more ambitious no exemptions kind of view um, because um, – uh, well, let me just put the question like this. Um, would you accept a non-burden shifting claim – Uh, for an exemption on the basis of conscience that was not religious? Yes. Oh, okay. So if I just am somebody who can make a plausible case for thinking that, um, you know, if I take off my Yankees hat, it's just not a picture of me. (laughs) Um, It would be hard to make,
1: I mean, remember it does, it does have to be a genuine claim of conscience and it is characteristic of claims of conscience that they make categorical demands it'd be hard to establish that there's a categorical requirement to always have your Yankee hat on. <laughs> um, but in principle, I don't want to rule it out. I don't want to rule it out. I mean, look, Henry David Thoreau had a very robust sense of conscience. Right. Um, it wasn't obviously religious. Right. Um, and, and, Uh, It seems to me, you know, the fundamental unfairness in our legal system now is that the only claims of conscience that have legal standing to challenge uh, the application of the law are those of religious believers. And unless you accepted the absurd view, though, I imagine there may be religious believers who accept this absurd view that only those who are religious have a conscience. Right. Um, Could you possibly think that uh, that that's fair and, and justifiable? So my proposal is. If it's a non-burden-shifting exemption, anyone has legal standing to challenge it on grounds that they have a conscientious objection. That would avoid the big practical problem of opening every possible law to objection on grounds of conscience because the default presumption is law promotes the general welfare, exemption shifts burden, no standing whatsoever to challenge it. Uh, whether whether you're you're religious or not, and, and let me mention, I mean, this is slightly ironic, but the United States Supreme Court actually adopted this view, basically this kind of view, in a 1990 case by none other than uh, uh, Justice Scalia of uh, <laughs> homophobia fame. Right. Um, uh, it was a decision called Employment Division versus Smith, and basically the Supreme Court said in that opinion that. Um, laws, neutral laws of general applicability, right? The state doesn't have to grant exemptions uh, because people have religious objections to them. In this case, these were criminal laws uh, about the use of certain uh, illegal narcotics. Um, That was the position the Supreme Court took, essentially what I'm calling the no exemptions approach. Um, The reaction to that in the United States was very bad. (laughs) And effectively, Employment Division versus Smith has almost uh, no application. That is, both the states, uh, many of the states uh, courts interpret their constitutions to provide more exemptions uh, for religious believers, the laws of general applicability, and the federal government uh, went so far as to bind itself not to enact and enforce laws that unnecessarily burden religious conscience. So the Supreme Court's adoption of the no exemptions approach was uh, was rather quickly undone at both the federal and the uh, and the state level. Nonetheless, it seems to me uh, to be the uh, the fairer uh, and more sensible uh, approach, at least again, at least if we're talking about laws that are actually neutral and actually promote the general welfare.
0: OK, so let me now sort of move on to uh, to. uh... You, you devote a whole chapter to uh, a kind of critic who might charge you with having started um, in slightly the wrong place. Um, so I could imagine just now speaking up for uh, for this critic, um, someone saying something like the following. Um, well, beginning with the question of toleration and uh, treating matters of conscience uh, through the lens of toleration. Um, is, is not, quite, not quite getting at, uh, at what makes religion uh, or, or not quite giving a fair shake to the idea that religion is, is somehow special, um, special both in the sense that it's, differ, it's different importantly from non-religion and special in the sense that it is a legitimate basis for claims uh, for exemption. Um, and that's the thought uh, that religion is um, a kind of uh, phenomenon that deserves a special kind of respect. Um, respect for the role that religion plays in the lives of the people who have such convictions, um, maybe even respect in the sense that uh, religion um, is the product of, a, of of a certain kind of uh, uh, emotional and cognitive endeavor of which only humans are capable, um, and so that respect is the is the appropriate lens to think. On all of this, and if we take a no exemptions approach, or if we take an approach that suggests that religion um, isn't special in some way, uh, we've uh, maybe we've even harmed or, 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 or uh, defamed uh, people with um, religious convictions.
1: Yeah. So I think there's uh, an ambiguity in in the notion of respect that that it's important to, to clear up uh, in in this context. Um, and uh, I use as my interlocutor here my, my colleague Martha Nussbaum, who in her own book about uh, American law of religious liberty from a couple of years ago, uh, she argued that the moral foundation of the law of religious liberty was a principle of respect. Mm-hmm. Um, she notices quite correctly, of course, that there is something slightly unpleasant about being tolerated, as my example at the beginning mm-hmm. suggested. I mean, toleration comes into play precisely with another group is saying we disapprove of you right. Right. disapprove of what you believe. We disapprove of what you do and, uh, and so on. Um, but the the ambiguity is right. There's uh, and here I use uh, Steve Darwell's old distinction, which he's now somewhat modified. Um, but, uh, you know, Steve Darwell's distinction between what he called uh, recognition respect. I refer to as minimal respect and then appraisal respect. Um, So the idea of recognition respect is that, um, uh, and and here I agree with my, my friend, Les Green, that to some extent recognition respect is a, is a bit odious. It's just redundant on what we have a moral obligation to do vis-a-vis other persons. Right? So we show recognition respect when in virtue of the fact that say people have a conscience, that's what Nussbaum emphasizes, uh, in virtue of the fact that people have uh, a conscience, um, we have a moral obligation to treat them as morality requires us to treat them. Um, but that doesn't settle any questions because one possibility is that we discharge our obligations of uh, recognition, respect simply by tolerating right. Right, the beliefs and practices and conscience of people of, uh, of which we, we disapprove. Um, so then the question becomes, well, is there, uh, a case for a stronger, more demanding sense of respect? Um, and, uh, this is what Darwall calls appraisal respect, right? Here the idea is not just that we act as we morally ought to towards others in virtue of them being having moral standing, but rather that uh, we uh, positively appraise the attributes or characteristics of uh, other people, right? So – um, so I show recognition, respect to you um, when, uh, when I don't put you in prison for uh, being sympathetic to American pragmatism. <laughs> I show appraisal respect to you when I praise the quality of your work on American pragmatism. Uh, which indeed is of very high quality, so I hereby appraise it. Um, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> okay, so that's the the difference. Darwall has in mind. So then I take up the question: Is there some reason to think religion ought to be a special object of appraisal respect? Um, and again, I think only if you had a very Panglossian view of religion and the role it's played in uh, human civilizations would you come up with an affirmative answer. Uh, religion sometimes is a force for very great good. And it's just as often a force for very great evil. It doesn't seem to me to be the kind of phenomenon that would be a proper object of appraisal respect. On the other hand, people's religious claims of conscience do have a demand for recognition respect. And my claim is that can be discharged fully by observing the demands of principal toleration.
0: OK, so th- th- this is helpful in that um, it it it. it I think naturally brings us to the the kind of discussion at the end of the book which I have to say I was a little surprised uh, when you took up the uh the question um or questions related to uh French law and uh the La uh, uh law in particular um I was surprised well I, I, it wasn't that I was surprised given having you know that I what was said earlier in the book um but uh, given what I, I thought I understood about your own attitudes towards religion, um, I, I thought you would be more sympathetic to the French system than it turns out that you are. Um, could you tell us a little bit about uh, that discussion that comes up uh, sure. in the last chapter?
1: Yeah. So when when the French enacted the law that banned uh, the wearing of ostentatious religious symbols in the school— um, this was now about a, almost a decade ago, not quite. Uh, I was originally sympathetic to the law. Um, that was that was my original reaction at the time. But the more I thought about it in light of the, the arguments for toleration that I discussed earlier in the book, I came to the conclusion that uh, you actually couldn't defend that law as being consistent with uh, principle toleration. Or I should say the actual law that they enacted couldn't be defended on that grounds. Um, that is, uh, there's first of all, just a threshold worry that the, the law, um, which purports to be neutral, it says any ostentatious symbols, uh, can't be displayed by school children, uh, in the schools. Um, you know, so that means, you know, the Catholics can't wear their big clunky crosses, you know, outside their shirt. Um. But it also means, and now you can see that the burden falls disproportionately on certain religious groups, it means that uh, Muslim girls can't wear the hajib, Jewish boys can't wear a skull cap. And you can see pretty clearly that the burden falls disproportionately on certain religious groups. And then if you look at the history of the law, it's quite clear, I think, um, though the French like to jump up and down and deny this, That a lot of it was motivated by anti Muslim uh, animus uh, in particular. But put that aside, let's suppose that uh, uh, there wasn't that particular worry about it, namely that it was basically an intolerant law designed to burden Muslims. Um, Suppose uh, we sort of take at face value the official rationale for the law, which was uh, as part of the French conception of what they call laicite which says basically in the public sphere, uh, everyone is to interact as an equal citizen, right, under the banner of equality, liberty, and fraternity, uh, and is to leave behind, as it were, their sectarian uh, identities of various kinds, including their religious ones. It does seem to me that the French government uh, can perfectly well, uh, and perfectly sensibly, adopt that ideal as an ideal for the public sphere right the question then becomes whether it's really necessary um, to uh prevent school children from wearing certain religious garb uh in order to in order to achieve that particular objective and as i argue i mean this is it does turn a little bit on cultural norms and, you know, sensitivities, but it's not obvious to me that, uh, that to promote laicite, uh, this, the, the state has to dictate what people wear or in particular what school children wear. And, and I emphasize school children because I think the case is slightly different, uh, if the state wanted to regulate what school teachers wear. Uh, And this issue has actually arisen in several states in Germany where they have banned school teachers from wearing religious garb. And and here the argument uh, seems to me a bit more plausible, which is if the state adopts the position that we believe in the equality of citizens qua citizens in the public space without regard to their sectarian identity, right, it undermines the state's adoption of that position if the teachers in the state schools, right, flaunt their sectarian identities. It doesn't seem to me it undermines the state's promotion of that ideal if it allows individual children to dress according to their uh, according to their conscience, and that seems to me to be the uh, the pertinent distinction uh, in the uh, in the case of the French law about ostentatious religious symbols. So it seems to me at bottom it's a case of uh, it, it's not compatible with principle of toleration to dictate what the children are wearing. Um, The one point I do hedge on, and this is, is buried in the notes, is some people have after the fact said, well, the actual purpose of the French law, uh, was to promote gender equality on the theory that Muslim girls were basically coerced into conforming to certain dress codes. And it may well be true that, that some of them are. what I note is that, that a law like that would present a different case, but that just wasn't the law they enacted. Right? Right, the, right. The law they enacted clearly couldn't be rationalized on grounds of, of gender, uh, gender equality. Um, nor could it be even rationalized on the grounds that we think, uh, the, the public sphere should be as it were free of religious symbols. Um, because there wasn't, you know, a great move at that point to, you know, tear down cathedrals and synagogues <laughs> and mosques on the ground that they're undermining, uh the equality of citizens qua citizens by being uh visible on public streets. So when 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 scrutinized, it seems to me the law didn't make sense. Uh and particularly given its history, I think it ends up looking like a case of uh intolerance by the state um, towards uh towards the conscience of some uh subgroups.
0: So is let me just ask a very quick question. So is it, it the the, the business with the school children um w- would you would you say that um uh, my understanding of the law is also that uh, if you're serving as a juror um and you're an adult um you you can't display ostentatious religious symbols. am, am i right about that um i actually don't know the answer to that oh uh, I, I thought that there was some uh, that, that some-
1: may that may well be right and it does seem to me now i don't discuss this uh uh this aspect of it but right. It um, seems to me there's probably a stronger argument um, for that prohibition because of the special setting that a court is. I mean, when people appear before the court, they are appearing before the state and asking to be judged equally and fairly based on the, the laws of the state that are not supposed to discriminate between people based on their uh, uh, religious affiliations. Um, jurors uh, advertising their uh, sectarian identities might be thought to be in some, some tension with that. On the other hand, I have to say, now putting on my lawyer's hat, right. that um, during the period of jury selection, uh, uh, I would very much want... <laughs> People to display their sectarian identity So I know what I'm getting into. Anyway, the, 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 this whole discussion is proceeding on one assumption that actually isn't applicable in the French case, which is uh, French France, like most European countries, uh, the the triers of fact are not lay people; they're 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 judges, they're officials, um, and certainly the French state can take the position that uh, people acting in their official capacity. Um, should present as citizens equal with other citizens and not... Uh, this is like the school teacher case, right? It seems to me there's very good reasons to say the judge can't be advertising uh, their religious identity when discharging the official roles of the state when it's a non-religious state.
0: So then would you say that um, the, the current state of affairs in the United States, where we do allow um, uh, officials, we allow politicians, for example, in fact, we... Um, In this country, uh, citizens take um, great interest from my point of view, um, uh, inappropriate interest in um, the religious convictions of officials and um, in fact want to see more forthrightness in um, political officials uh, appealing to their religious conviction uh, in the course of uh, discharging their public service. I take it that that uh, that that your view has to be critical of um, uh, the state of affairs in the United States on these kinds of questions. Then,
1: yeah, um, I am uh, critical of it, but but not for reasons related to the argument about principal toleration in in this okay. book. That is, I mean, th- this really turns on a different kind of question. I mean, the French state has established. Um, You know, equality, fraternity and liberty, the equality of citizens as citizens without regard to their sectarian identities as part of its vision of what French society should be. Um, I think it's not a bad vision. I think there's a lot that's quite attractive about it. But that has to be, as it were, argued on its on independent terms, that that's a good vision, uh, as I call it, a vision of the good for the for the state to adopt. Um, I do think, uh, and as I say in the book, that, and contrary, say, to the Rawlsian political liberals, um, whose view on this score just strikes me as sort of incredible, um, <laughs> that, uh, that all states, including liberal states, do adopt and present a vision of the, of the good. Um, the American state is not neutral as between, you know, liberty, equality, democracy, and, you know, fascism, racism, <laughs> and anti-Semitism uh... the state is also not neutral except when uh... you know know nothings interfere with the public schools the state is not neutral about whether children ought to learn uh... basic biology including darwin's theory of evolution by natural selection um, it seems to me the state there's a very good argument why the state ought to take that position say in the case of biology education and here now i differ very much from my colleague martha nussbaum i don't think there should be any exemptions for children uh, from instruction in actual biology just because they have religious objections. Um, on the other hand, I think it's a requirement of liberty of conscience that you let people, t- you know, on Sunday or Saturday teach whatever they want about these things, but that's not a reason for the school to exempt children uh, from proper instruction. So the real question is: what kind of vision of the good ought we to adopt in our society? Um, you know, I think we ought to, we did at one time in the United States, adopt more clearly a vision of the good that emphasized the separation of church and state and the idea that the public sphere should be a little bit more like the French public sphere. I think that we were moving in that direction in the 60s and 70s as a matter of constitutional law. We've really reversed course uh, since the 1980s. And that's partly reflected in the popular culture and the popular sentiments uh, to which you allude. This seems to me a mistake, but not because of principle toleration, but just because, for example, it's a mistake to think that there's any relationship at all between professions of religiosity and sound moral judgment. Um, Indeed, I almost inclined to think in the United States it's the opposite. Um, (laughs) But again, that's. We'd have to argue that on the merits of uh, the particular, particular politicians and their professions of religious commitment and so on. Trevor Burrus
0: <laughs> Well, um, uh, Brian Leiter, um, we're, we're coming to the end of our time together and you've been very, very generous. Um, uh, thank you for, uh, for, for talking about your book, Why Tolerate Religion? And uh, I just always ask uh, a last question at the end. Um, it's cruel somewhat to ask somebody who's just published a book what they're up to next, but uh, what are you up to next?
1: Well, first, let me say thank you for uh, a very generous set of questions and giving me this this opportunity. Sure. Um, you know, the nature of book publishing is right. You know, I finished the book oh, you know, good nine months ago. So, <laughs> you know, I've had time to work uh, on a few other things. I, I'm working on two things right now. One is I I have an extended project on. Uh, issues in moral psychology in relationship to Nietzsche, partly in relation to Nietzsche, partly in relation to contemporary issues in moral psychology. Uh, I've been very struck by the extent to which uh, Nietzsche, as a moral psychologist, um, made a lot of claims that seem to have been vindicated by a lot of work in empirical psychology. So I have a number of papers on that, and I, I may be putting together a monograph uh, on, on those issues. Um, the other project totally unrelated to the Nietzsche and more in the spirit of my, uh, recent jurisprudential interest, um, is, uh, you know, I recently reviewed Waldron's book on hate speech and I've been thinking a little bit about, um, you know, the American approach to the law of free speech is quite libertarian and it seems to me too much so. Uh, and in ways that aren't really defensible. And so I'm working on a project that's tentatively titled The Case Against Free Speech. Um, (laughs) Like Why Tolerate Religion, I'd like to settle on a nice uh, eye-catching title. (laughs) Um, I think there is a strong case to be made uh, against free speech, though I don't go to some extreme that the title might suggest. What I start off with, though, is the observation that democratic societies have institutions uh, central institutions, the courts are my example, in which uh, free, there is no free speech. Speech is right. massively restricted. It's restricted for epistemic reasons of a funny kind of million sort. Right. Um, and nobody thinks there's anything problematic about it. And so my the launching pad is obviously the courts are different than society at large, but what are the precise ways in which they're different? And... How might thinking about those in democratic institutions in which free, there is no free speech lead us to think differently about uh, speech in the, in the public domain? So that's the other project.
0: Well, those both sound fascinating. And, um, you know, as uh, as you make progress and uh, they eventually produce two books, um, maybe we'll talk about one or both of them on a future episode. I would,
1: I would be honored and pleased to do that. So thanks
0: so much, Bob. Well, thank you for your time and uh, have a good day now. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to my interview with Professor Brian Leiter of the University of Chicago Law School. We were talking about his new book, Why Tolerate Religion, which was published by Princeton University Press. I'm Robert Talese, your host. This is New Books in Philosophy. Thank you for listening.